Time to continue our series called Time is of the Essence. It's actually a look at Matthew chapter 16 and part of Matthew chapter 17. Time is of the essence because it's from this point on that Jesus has his eyes set on Jerusalem and the cross. And everything is doubly and triply important uh, to him, to his disciples, and to those around him. And the words that he says are... uh, dramatically uh, more punctuated than they were in the previous chapters. So we're going to open up here to Matthew chapter 16. Today our scripture is verses 13 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles up front here. You're welcome to take one um, and and use it. Or if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one and keep it. That would be fine. Uh, All the scriptures, I believe, are on the screen as well today, so you can follow along there, but I'd just love for you to follow along in your, in your Bibles if you can. Let's open with a word of prayer before we read this scripture. God, we just thank you for the beauty of the day. We thank you for bringing us here together for worship corporately. I ask, Lord, that you would go before us just now and remove all those uh, thoughts about the the troubles and the times of this past week, the anxieties for things that we're thinking will happen this coming week, just remove all those from our minds so that we can focus totally upon you. You are the object of our worship. And Lord, we thank you for allowing us uh, to come and freely worship here. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. I uh, have put up here on the, on the uh, screen for you, uh, particularly for those of you that haven't been around here for a while, the uh, map of Israel, most of Israel, down at the bottom of the Dead Sea, up at the top, that little blue dot up there is the Sea of Galilee, around which most of Jesus' teaching took place. We've been looking, we've been walking from side to side, north, south, at the Sea of Galilee for months now. And this time, we changed locations a little bit. A uh, close-up of the map shows us that we're going to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, not very far. I mean, these guys that walk all the time could walk it in a day, a day and a half, or something like that. It wouldn't be that big of a trip, except that the Sea of Galilee is at 600 feet below sea level, 
Caesarea Philippi is about 5,500 feet above the sea level. So it's quite an incline. Uh, there wouldn't be any level ground going from Sea of Galilee up to Caesarea Philippi, and the road is rather curvy. It's like on one of our mountain roads, uh, maybe in the, in the Rockies that we say heading there. So it would be quite a trek for these guys to take. But I want you to know where our location is for what we're talking about today. I think it's, it's important that we get into our minds the location. Um, the Tibet, you know I go to uh, Nepal and Asia uh, quite a bit on mission trips, and Tibetan Buddhists um, have this strange thing about death. They, they believe in transmigration of souls. And it's different from re- reincarnation that the Hindus believe, and Nepal is mostly Hindu, but they do have some Buddhists. Um, the transmigration of souls works kind of like this. When somebody dies, their soul moves from that body to another body of a child that's just been born, a baby that's just been born. So it's instantaneous transfer of that soul. I guess there's never any more souls than there. You know, it's a finite number, I guess, is, is what they say. Uh, but it, it's not a big deal until it comes to their spiritual leader. Guy named the Dalai Lama, the spiritual leader, the head of the Buddhists. Um, when Dalai Lama dies, his soul, of course, moves to another boy within the kingdom, and they set out to search to find who that boy is that was born at the exact instant that the Dalai Lama died. The exact instant, and it, it may take them. Months, even even years in the past. Now I guess it's much faster with, with travel the way it is today. But they find that child. They take the child away from his family. They take him to a, to a monastery, and he's raised by other people to become the new Dalai Lama. From the instant that he was born, they know that he's the Dalai Lama. He knows that he's the Dalai Lama, and there is no question about who the Dalai Lama is. Well, Judaism is a little bit different. It was at the time of Jesus. It is today. The Jews of Jesus' day believed that God was going to send, we've talked about this before, send this anointed king who would kind of spearhead this movement to uh, overcome the people who were oppressing Israel and to bring freedom and to bring peace to the world, justice to the world. That was, that was the anointed king that they expected. And the word for anointed king in the Hebrew and the Aramaic is the word Mashiach. Mashiach, from which we get the word Messiah today. Messiah, the anointed king. That's really what anointed king would mean or Messiah would mean. Well, what, what would this Messiah be like? I think there was a lot of confusion. We've seen some confusion already in Scripture in, in the book of Matthew. Some people thought that he would be a warrior king, one that rides in on a horse with an army behind him and and throws out all the Romans or whoever else might be occupying Israel at the time, gets rid of them, and then um, becomes king on a throne in in, uh, Jerusalem. Other people thought it would be a, a person who would come and purge the temple because they knew that the temple worship had had degraded to the point that it didn't look anything like God intended for it to look. So he would restore true worship. 
He would be the person that would bring God's kingdom into being on earth, just as it is in heaven. That's what they thought. Well, where would he come from? That would be important, wouldn't it? Where's he going to come from? And Scripture tells us that as well. Micah 5, 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Out of the city of Bethlehem will come Messiah. You would think all attention would be on that one little city. Probably at that time about 20 families. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't a big place. It had been a very small village. It would be easy to spot if somebody was born, first of all. And if they were born and they were a male, that would be easy to spot. You would think they would be looking through the microscope at Bethlehem. Not so. To understand Jesus, we must first look at two uh, great, uh, just for lack of a better word, great things about him. The first thing is who he is. Who, Who is he? Who is he? And in theological terms, we call this the person of Christ. What is the person of Christ? And secondly, what did he do? And the theological term for that is the work of Christ. So we're looking at who he is, um, the person of Christ, and what he does, the work of Christ. What's amazing is that they all come together in this 16th chapter of Matthew for the first time in Scripture. So that means that Matthew 16 is, is really a critical chapter in the Bible. And the verse that we're going, verses that we're looking at today are vital to the understanding of Matthew chapter 16. There's several things that Matthew teaches us throughout this uh, uh, chapter, this 16th chapter, that are foundational. And we're just going to look at one today. But the, the other two I want to give you so we can be thinking about them in the, in the weeks to come. The first is this, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's pretty foundational. The second thing Matthew teaches us a little later, like next week, is he came to suffer. Jesus came to suffer and die and on the third day rise again. And the third thing he teaches us is those who would be his disciples, Jesus' disciples, must follow him by taking up their crosses daily. So those will be kind of the roadmaps for us to use the next couple of weeks. But the scripture that we read today has some problems in it, some questions that arise almost instantly. I guess the scripture that we read today is, is maybe one of those that has divided churches for centuries, actually brought wars for centuries, caused people to love and hate for centuries. So we need to stop just a moment today and take a look at a few of those. Who is the rock on which Jesus says he will build his church? What are the gates of hell? What did Jesus promise Peter when he said he'd give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Big questions in little phrases stuck in the midst of the scripture that we're looking at. So let's dissect the scripture for today. Not all of it is puzzling. A lot of it is very simple. And usually the most important things, the things that are really important to us, usually they're pretty simple concepts. So I want to start with the big idea. The big idea for today is this, out of chapter 16, and really the big idea of the Bible, if you look at it in a general sense. Peter's great confession, Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. If you go away from here with nothing else today, go away from here knowing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus was trying to get uh, his disciples to give him information. And he did this with two very distinct probing questions to them that we read in the Scriptures. First, uh, he said, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Who do the crowds, who do those people that follow us around, who do they say the Son of Man is? Son of Man was the way that Jesus most frequently referred to himself. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, a phrase in Daniel chapter 7, and it was the phrase that Jesus used almost exclusively to refer to himself. And it's used here in verse 13. Now, he wasn't asking his disciples this question about who the people thought he was because he didn't know the answer. He was trying to elicit the answers from them, make them think a little bit. The identifications, the IDs about Jesus, uh, these speculations, I guess, were not uncommon. They were speculations that folks had about anybody who kind of stood up above the crowd. I don't mean in tall stature, but in, you know, kind of stood out from the crowd, made a name for themselves. The same probe we looked at earlier was, was used toward John the Baptist. They wanted to know, was he the Christ? Was he, if he wasn't the Christ, was he Elijah? Or, or was he one of the other prophets? And John the Baptist was very clear in denying all of those claims and saying, no, I'm a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way for the Lord. He was preparing the way. He wasn't Messiah. He was preparing the way. But there's three speculations that the, that the disciples gave to Jesus here that we could look at very briefly. The first speculation was this, that Jesus was John the Baptist. Hmm, some people thought that. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But if you remember back two chapters to Matthew 14, when Herod killed John the Baptist, Herod had the same question. Could this, John the Baptist, could this Jesus be John the Baptist? Come back to life? Resurrected? Would that be a possibility? And the people evidently had the same question uh, themselves. The second speculation was that Jesus was Elijah. And why would Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, be on this short list of, uh, of uh, people who might possibly become Messiah or be the Messiah? Elijah was always on the short list because... He's referred to in the very last scriptures in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says this, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So Elijah was a thought. You know, if this guy is Elijah, Messiah can't be far behind. Another opinion of the crowd was uh, perhaps this Jesus was really Jeremiah. Well, why would Jeremiah's name come up? Jeremiah's name in, in uh, Jewish tradition was um, thought to be the person who went into the temple at the time 
Jerusalem was being destroyed by the Babylonians, not by the Russian, uh, Romans, but by the Bab- Babylonians. And he took from the temple, never to be seen again, by the way, the Ark of the Covenant and the Altar of Incense, two important furnishings that were in the temple that helped the people to worship God. Without those two, they could not worship God. He took them, supposedly, tradition says, and hid them away. And he would come again to reveal those things to the people prior to Messiah coming. So could this be Jeremiah? Could Jeremiah be here in front of us right now? That was the second speculation. The third speculation was the most general of all, and it was, well, maybe he's just one of the prophets, one of the other prophets. So those were the three possibilities that they gave. I I find it more than just a little bit amazing that nobody even considered that Jesus might be Messiah. I guess it's because they had a different um, um, concept of what the Messiah would be, what expectations they had. Um, there's, there's the second probing question that Jesus asks, and it is much more personal. He says, well, that's what the people think. Thank you for telling me what their uh, opinions were. But what about you? What about you? Who do you say? that I am. And I think when I, when I read this, I always see the disciples and Jesus sitting around a campfire and um, in a circle, and Jesus is asking that question, who do you say that I am? And in all, the only person that could possibly do this would be Jesus, but as he said that, his eye was trained on every eye there individually. Who do you? say that I am? There's the important question. And Peter spoke up. Not uncommon for Peter to speak up, is it? Peter spoke up and said, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And with that answer, Peter did two things rather forcefully. He he answered correctly and identified Jesus as Messiah, the Christ, the anointed King. And he also identified Jesus as being divine, as being God. Now, the combination of these two things, the combination of them together is what's so important about Peter's confession. That's why we talk about it even today. Jesus wasn't any just mere man. He was God himself. He had come to save his people. And we go back to the scripture that we looked at, I guess the first time was Christmas Eve, Matthew 1, 20 and 21, where um, we're we're, uh, discussing Joseph being visited by the angel. Verse 20 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, Joseph, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Yeshua means he will save his people. The Greek text, when we look at that, and I, I 
try to go back and read most of these uh, major things in, in the Greek just to see if we miss anything. The Greek text, text is even more forceful than how we read it in English. It's, it reads like this, literally reads like this. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. Notice how many times that definite article, the, is used. And in Greek, the means the one and only. You are the one and only Christ, the one and only Son of the one and only God. I mean, that's pretty powerful when Peter made that confession. I think all of these kind of miss a, miss a point, and I think we need to take a look at how Peter responded to um, this, how Jesus, I'm sorry, how Jesus responded to Peter's confession. Jesus didn't look at Peter and say, you know, man, thank you for saying such nice things about me. That was, that was awfully nice and very magnanimous of you. But, you know, I, I'm just a Galilean like the rest of you guys sitting around the campfire here. I can't take credit for that. This confession was so true and it was so important that Jesus pointed out that it wasn't in the same category with the stuff that normally comes out of Peter's mouth, most of which was wrong. I mean, think about the times he speaks. Even, even later in this chapter, he's speaking and it's wrong. Jesus told Peter in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And Jesus drew attention to the fact that this was a revelation from God. And it's the same today. It's the first and the most important thing that any person needs to understand about Jesus is that He's the Son of God. He is divine. An ancient creed, the Nicene Creed says, very God of very God. He is God Himself. Now, why would that be important to the whole scheme of things? Because the value of His work, dying on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, depends on who He is. It depends on who He is. If He isn't God, His death is no more important than any other man's death. I mean, what big, big deal is it about Napoleon dying? What impact does that have on your life or my life? But if He is God, then it's of infinite importance because He can take away our sins. Wow. Do you see that? I mean, can, can you kind of see what I'm saying there? Can you believe that? In your heart of hearts, can you believe what is being said in the Scripture? Hello. Well, if you can believe it, let me tell you, it's because God's revealed it to you. He has revealed it to you, just like He revealed it to Peter. It's because He's blessing you. Sitting here today, He's blessing you by bringing you out of spiritual blindness, out of darkness, out of death, into spiritual sight and spiritual light and spiritual life just exactly like Peter in this passage. 
in Alpha, we study, study this, uh, this phrase that is, I don't understand to believe. I believe in order to understand. You got that? I don't understand to believe. In other words, I, all, all the things don't add up. Everything doesn't really add up in the Bible. We aren't intelligent enough to figure it all out. I don't understand in order to believe. I believe in order that I might understand. How important is that? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 from the message version says this. Now God has us where he wants us with all the time in this world. And the next to shower grace and kindness upon us is Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. Salvation, saving, rescuing is God's work from beginning to end. Are we good so far? You with us so far? Now I want to look at some of those problem phrases in these verses. So what did Jesus mean when he said to Peter in verses 18 and 19? And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. By the way, it's the first time that church has ever been used in Scripture. Jesus made up the word right there. Ecclesia, church. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So kind of phrase by phrase here, let's look at this. The first is on this rock, on this rock. There's three main interpretations for the phrase on this rock. The first is Peter is the rock. That's who we're referring to. Peter is the rock. The Roman Catholic Church concludes from this verse that Jesus appointed Peter and appointed all of his successors to be the head of the church. That would be their point of view. Most Protestants are willing to think of Peter as the rock, but only in the sense that he was the first one to make this confession, and then the apostles along with him became a foundation on which the church that Jesus Christ was building could be built. Ephesians 2.20, um, where Paul is writing, Paul the, the apostle, the great apostle who wrote most of, the, most of the New Testament other than the Gospels, Paul describes the church in this way. He says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. There's nothing in this text that we read that would speak to Peter's successors. There's nothing in this scripture that we read that would speak to 
their infallibility or their exclusive authority over the church, as they would contend. The second interpretation would be this. The confession, Peter's confession, is the rock. And that's the viewpoint that we hold here at Renovation Church. It's the confession that is the rock. Let me, let me go through this with you a little bit. It's also the major view among Protestants, I would say. The faith expressed by Peter was the rock on which Jesus would build his church. And as you read back through church history, particularly writings by the early church fathers, you see that this was their view also. I don't know where it jumped the track about the 3rd or 4th century when, when all of a sudden Peter became the rock instead of this confession being the rock. St. John Chrysostom, the bishop of Constantinople, who was also called the doctor of the church because he was so intelligent, had such a way of, of vocalizing and writing uh, the theology that, that, was, uh, that was the church at the time, wrote this, referring to on this rock, that is on the, on the faith of Peter's confession. Jesus didn't say upon Peter, for it was not upon man, but upon his faith. So from the very beginnings, it was understood that this was on the faith of Peter's confession that we were talking about the rock. The third interpretation is this one. Christ is the rock. Jesus Christ himself is the rock. And this is kind of a minority view among evangelicals today, evangelicals being those, particularly in America, but they're, they're throughout the world, that... that um, adhere strictly to Scripture, that believe in the authority of Scripture above all else. They would explain this by saying, and this is minority view again, they would say that this was a, a time that Jesus was making a pun out of Peter's name. It's just a pun. He's just, it's just a joke. You know, that's, that's all he's saying. Um, Peter's name is Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. And it's a masculine noun, and it means rock or stone or pebble. His name in, Peter's name in Hebrew is Cephas. You'll see sometimes in Scripture it'll say Cephas, and that's uh, his name too. And that also means rock. But when Jesus referred in the Scripture that we just read to this rock, this rock, he used a feminine form, or the writer used a feminine form of the noun, the word Petra, not Petros, Petra. And this interpretation would say that, that it meant bedrock or foundation. In other words, the idea would be that Peter was only a little rock or a little pebble, but Jesus is the foundation, the bedrock, the foundation on which the church is built. Now, I think all of these interpretations miss one important point, and that's how did Peter understand Jesus' words? What did he think? I mean, he's face-to-face -face with Jesus right here when we're having this conversation. What did Peter think? And fortunately, Peter did some writing in the New Testament. We can turn to that writing and see what his writings say about his beliefs. <clears throat> 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8 is where we're going to look. It, it, it provides, I think, a definitive answer for this question about what Peter believed, because here and then in a great sermon that he preached before the, the Jewish court, the, the Sanhedrin back in Acts chapter 4 or so, 
Peter doesn't even for a moment suggest that he might be the rock. He's insistent that Jesus Christ is the rock, the foundation of the church. So let's look at this Peter, 1 Peter passage, 2 through 4. We'll begin with verse 2, verse 4 through 8. We'll begin with verse 4. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus, Peter refers to Jesus as the living stone. The, there's that definite article again, the one and only living stone on which those who believe are like living stones. They're the little pebbles. They're being built together into this spiritual house that we call the church. Verse 6 says, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion. Zion, the reference to Israel, to Jerusalem. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. This referring to uh, Jesus is the one who has been rejected by men, but chosen by God and very precious to him. And yes, it is Zion. How are human beings to be related to Jesus? How can we be related to Jesus? Through faith, through faith, through trust in him, by believing in Jesus Christ as our Lord, our Savior, our rescuer, whatever term you want to use. By doing that, we are being built into the church that God is constructing. Verse 7, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a capstone. To those who believe, Jesus is precious. Yet that's not the only response one can have to Jesus. One can reject Jesus as well. And verse 8 says, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Rejecting Jesus is no small matter at all. And it has profound eternal consequences. The consequence would be falling spiritually, being lost forever. This rock. Second phrase is the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades. I put a couple of pictures up here. The first picture is a distant shot of Caesarea Philippi. That's, that's where we're talking about. That's Caesarea Philippi. And you notice there's a big cave there. That cave is known as the gates of hell. Close-up shot. There was a river at the time Jesus was there, a river that flowed out of that cave. Um, there's been earthquakes since then, and there's just a little trickle. Most of the water that's there is spring water from Mount Hermon that's underground, so you don't even see the, the water flowing that much. The river that flowed out of that place was believed to be a river that led to hell. Thus, the gates of hell was the entrance to the cave. This was a place where pagan worship took place. Horrible, 
pagan worship. The god that was worshipped there was the Greek god Pan. And Pan was believed to be have the body of a goat and the head of a man. Though if you look at the depictions that they have as you, as you visit that site, the man had horns, so you know it was a little more than just a man, I guess. It was more evil than just a man. Uh, Pan was the god of fertility. So at certain times of the year, people would gather here at Caesarea Philippi to worship, to offer sacrifices to Pan in hopes that either they would have children, their children would be born healthy, their crops would grow after they were planted, or their crops would reap uh, you know, much reward for them. Things that took place there included um, uh, sex with animals, with goats, uh, a, a, a platter, a big uh, basin that would be heated up and children would be sacrificed on that basin. There was some awful stuff that was going on here at Caesarea Philippi at the gates of hell. So it could be appropriately named that way. It was, it was not a, um, a vacation spot. It was, a, it was a horrible, horrible place of pagan worship. The most common view of this term, gates of hell, is that Jesus was referring to an attack on the church by Satan, along with a promise that it didn't matter what the attack was, the church would stand. That's the, probably the most common view. Another view, and the one that, that we... Uh, that I've come to accept as I've read more and more and more about this is that gates of hell referred to death, to death. That was the Jewish way that they would use to refer to death, passing through the gates of hell, passing through the gates of Hades was to die. And the idea, I think, there would be that not even death, whether it would be spiritual death or whether it would be extreme persecutions of the church. Not even death would be able to destroy the church that Jesus Christ was building. It would always live on. The third phrase, real quickly, is the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. Okay, now uh, Peter's not the rock, but he did play an important role. And, And the scripture says Peter was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And I've got to admit... I was pretty overwhelmed when I actually saw this this week, again, kind of looking at the Greek, and, and I don't know, I just never saw this word before. But it is the, king, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, not the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I think I've said all my life, Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Does that make any difference? Well, I think it does make a difference, and I think as we look through these uh, interpretations, you may see that difference. There was a promise added, too. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Does, Does that mean that Peter has the exclusive right to decide who will go to heaven and who won't go to heaven? Is that the keys of the kingdom of heaven? And there's three major interpretations. The first is this. Peter and his successors have been given authority to receive or exclude individuals from heaven. Peter and the popes that follow, the priesthood that follows, 
authority to receive or exclude individual people from heaven. And that's the position of the Roman Catholic Church. Strict Catholicism teaches that there is no salvation apart from the fellowship of the church. You have to be in the church if you have sal- in order to have salvation. You leave the church, salvation's gone. I think that may be one of the reasons uh, when I was growing up, certainly my Catholic friends had to be in church at the time they had Mass, or it was a sin. It was a sin if they weren't in church. I didn't understand that, but in, in reading more about it, I began to understand what this is all about. There's exclusion from the church by excommunication, a cutting off, a severing of ties with the church, and it means really that one's been severed from the body of Christ, if you believe the church is the body of Christ. And a person who was excommunicated from the church went to hell. There was no second thought about it. They were going to hell. And priests have the authority um, over their flocks with this, with this idea. But the, ult- the ultimate authority lies with the Pope, of course. That's the first interpretation. Peter was given authority to receive or exclude. The second interpretation is this. Ministers have the authority to announce forgiveness of sins to those who repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And this is the Protestant uh, idea, the Protestant interpretation or position, and it finds its meaning in, in our Protestant services where you have a time of confession and assurance of pardon. You give the people a time, maybe lead them in a prayer for confession, and then assure them that if they have confessed their sins, if they've received Jesus Christ, they've been pardoned. It's just that assurance of pardon. The third interpretation is this one. Now, I think this is where I'm settling down. Um, Peter used the keys of the kingdom by opening the door of the gospel to Jews and later by opening the door of the gospel to Gentiles. I think we had up here a while ago a picture of Peter. Um, yeah, those, those pictures. I, I don't know for whatever reason. I guess I just had the TV on, but, the, you know, the Pope resigned. Did you know the Pope resigned? Uh, Pope resigned uh, on Thursday, I think it was, and um, I noticed the statue that I had seen in Rome one time. They did a close-up of the statue, and I thought, wow, I... I can use that in the message on Sunday. Notice the picture of Peter with the keys of the kingdom in his hand. How many keys are there? How many? Where's the close-up? There we go. Another angle, there's two keys. Now, you might say one's the key to heaven and one's the key to hell. If you're, think, if you're thinking it's the keys to the kingdom of heaven, but if they are keys of the kingdom of heaven, like the word says there, could it be, could it be that we're talking about Peter's use of the keys to unlock the gospel to the Jews first and then unlock the gospel to the Gentiles later? That's why there's only two keys. That's why he's holding them. This is the same uh, view that's held by a lot of distinguished 
evangelical scholars here and around the world. John Stott, for example, in his commentary on Acts 10, this is the account of Cornelius becoming a Christian, a believer. Stott writes, We have already watched Peter use these keys effectively, opening the kingdom of God to the Jews on the day of Pentecost and then to the Sanhedrin, that court, soon afterwards. Now he is to use them again to open the kingdom of God to Gentiles by evangelizing and baptizing Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. The keys of the kingdom. And of course, the last little phrase that's used is no little phrase, Jesus the Christ. Matthew records that Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anybody what he had revealed to them about he was the Christ. Why? Well, because there's been so many mistaken ideas about who Messiah was and what he would do when he came. And, and scholars and theologians refer to this, this statement by Jesus, you know, keep it quiet, don't, don't tell anybody, it's not time yet, as the messianic secret, the messianic secret. It wasn't time. But that was then, and this is now. And today there's no reason, and in fact, there's every command from Jesus himself to tell, to proclaim it, to let people know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus is the sinner's Savior, the sinner's rescuer, that to repent of sin and to trust in Jesus Christ alone for your rescue is to pass from death into life, from darkness into light, from blindness into sight. I think that's the good news of Matthew chapter 16. Believe it. Believe it, if you will, and then share it with someone. There are several steps you could take this week. One, one that you could, uh, and this might be fun, actually. Ask your friends, what do they believe? Your family, what do they, who do they believe that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? What about you yourself? Who do you say that Jesus is. You could decide today to receive or reject Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. But if you reject, remember there are eternal consequences. And if you put it off and say, I, I, I'm not going to make a decision right now, then you've already made a decision. You've either received, or you've rejected. There's not an in-between. Spend some time today in prayer with a member of the ministry team. Whoever they are, I'm going to ask them to come up and take their places on, the, on either side here with a member of the ministry team or one of the pastors concerning the effect of Peter's confession on your life. Who do you say Jesus is? Can you remember a time that that became clear to you? Maybe you'd like to share that with the, with the person on the ministry team. That would be an interesting conversation. And the last one is find a New Testament in 40 days reading plan. You can go to uh, 
BibleGateway.com, and there's a number of different reading plans on there. But I saw one yesterday that would begin the, the Monday after Easter for 40 days, just through the New Testament. It doesn't have to be the whole Bible. It's just the New Testament. Very easy reading, uh, something that you would be quite interested in. Uh, and the neat thing about that is you don't have to remember. You sign up and they pop up an email on your account uh, that reminds you to do the reading. It actually gives it to you right there. So, so there's not this thing about, oh, gosh, I forgot. To, I mean, it pops up for you. It's like a reminder, a tickler, they call it. Any of those. We would love for you to follow along um, in the 40 days read-through of the New Testament. An easy read it really is.